0: Thanks for listening to the podcast from Gary Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Wilson, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. Good morning. You're here at just the right time. We're beginning a new 12-week series through the book of Judges, verse by verse through the book of Judges. And we've entitled this series Searching for a True Savior an exposition of judges because the, the book's name comes from the type of leaders that God was raising up during this time to save his people. But all of those judges fall short of being able to truly bring life change to the people of God, to bring them a true savior. And so it leaves us, as we read a book like this, it leaves us with a taste in our mouth for someone who could truly save us. And all of that points to Jesus, I believe. And we'll be looking for Jesus in every chapter. And and I hope you'll stay with us through this entire series. Now, the chapter, or excuse me, the book comes from um, its own way of describing itself, that there are 12 judges in the, in the book of Judges that, that we'll be talking about over the next few weeks. In Judges chapter 2, we read this, "...whenever the, the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved by pity." Uh, to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them and so so the book is called judges because of these judges but don't think of it in the sense of some black-robed gavel carrying courtroom judge not like that more like tribal chieftains uh, heroes human heroes kind of uh, the kind of people that God was sitting apart to save his people from oppression and so the the word judge here, Uh, lowercase judge, is talking about these people that God was raising up. They were like local chieftains, part of a local tribe during this period of time. And so the book of Judges um, takes place roughly between the 15th and the 11th century B.C., so that's three millennia ago, three over 3,000 years ago when this book uh, is taking place, the history of this book is taking place. It covers the time of the people after the death of Joshua, up through the the book of Ruth, that's during the age of the judges, all the way up through the prophet Samuel. In fact, Samuel is the last judge. He's the last uh, prophet, priest, judge uh, Up up until that time, until the coronation of King Saul Uh, along about 1051 BC. And so that's the time period that's being covered here. The book has no uh, author. The author certainly is the Holy Spirit. Amen? But, But the human author is anonymous, but the ancient rabbis attributed it to the prophet Samuel. And I tend to to, to go with those who were closest to, to its writing, and I tend to think maybe Samuel was the author of this book. We'll see that there are some key verses in here that uh, Samuel seemed to be trying to connect Uh, where Israel had been up until the time of the kings and he would have possibly uh, been motivated to do that by the Holy Spirit. Uh, A couple of key verses in the book that really are like the keys under the doormat to unlock the understanding of the book. Let me point those out to you. One will be that we'll read today from Judges chapter two. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so it describes a group of people after the death of Joshua. They didn't grow up fighting in the wilderness. They, 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 they weren't there at the crossing of the Red Sea. They weren't there in the 40 years in the wilderness eating manna. They don't know this story. And so there was a failure apparently on the part of their parents of teaching them the faith, passing the baton of faith. We're always only one generation away from apostasy. Because parents, it's up to us to pass on the the gospel and the the faith of the fathers on to the next generation. Amen? And, And so we see here the mark of this people in the book of Judges is they didn't know the Lord, and they didn't know his work. They didn't know his power. So that's one key verse. Here's another key verse that happens twice in the book of Judges, chapter 17 and chapter 21. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I would say that above all the, the, the themes of this book, that's it. Everyone did right in his own eyes. Uh, it may have happened three millennia ago, but it certainly describes a modern age, doesn't it? An age where we've thrown out the idea of, of uh, absolute truth, the idea of, of right and wrong, and everybody just does their own thing. And that's what it was like during this time. Everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. Now, be warned as we begin this, uh, this study through the book of Judges. If it were a movie, we would probably uh, be told to put M.A. On, on the front of the movie, mature audiences only, because this is a disturbing and violent book. It describes uh, a sordid story of Israel's failure to trust God's promises and God's power. And what we see here is really a, a, a circular, almost like down the toilet, if you will, flushing away of their morality to where they, instead of driving out the, the, the pagan peoples called the Canaanites, instead of driving them out and, and possessing the promised land that God had given them, uh, it really could be called the book of the Canaanization of Israel. Because Israel begins to look just like the world instead of like God's people. When you read the Bible, sometimes you might be misled to think it's a book about us, but it's really a book about God. It's really a book about God, and it tells the truth about humanity, warts and all. And so certainly the book of Judges might be filled with more warts uh, than most books. It's it's a challenging book. Speaking of challenging, I have outlined this book probably three different times in previous years with the intent of preparing myself to preach it to you. And then I would pray about it and think, either I didn't feel ready to preach it or I didn't feel like you were ready to hear it, but I didn't feel a release from the Spirit to do it until this year. And it's because it's so challenging. And my challenge to preach, when I preach, I always preach unto repentance. We don't just preach for a history lesson. We preach so that the the word of God challenges heart change and always leads us to Jesus. And so you'll see why the book of Judges takes a little more effort, a little more work to look for Jesus in the gospel on every page. But we're going to do that today. And so, so I've been challenged by this book. I hear people say, why in the world is this book even in the Bible? Like, why, why did God put this book in the Bible? Well, I would say this, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this about the Old Testament, in the book of Romans. He says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And so here's what, here's what the Holy Spirit told Paul to tell to the church at Rome. He said the Old Testament, which includes the book of Judges, was written for our endurance, for our encouragement, and so that we might have hope. And so we're going to study books like the old, like in the Old Testament like the book of Judges, and we're going to look for hope because hope is here, but we have to listen closely for God's voice. Now, uh, uh, Pastor Tim Keller writes about this book. He says, Judges can be described as despicable people doing deplorable things. Because it's just talking about real people and how, how the history unfolds for the people of Israel. And he says even their judges, their heroes, are becoming increasingly flawed and failing as we continue. As we go through the 12 judges like Othniel and Gideon and Samson. They just get worse and worse. But as we go through the book, you ask the question, he says, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? And he says, there's an important reason, it's because it's the gospel. Because even here we find the good news of hope from Jesus. Now as we we look at this book today, I've entitled this message, Could Not or Would Not. We're gonna be looking at two chapters. Chapter one is really kind of like the report from the field by the people of Israel on how they're doing in driving out the Canaanites from the Promised Land. And then chapter two is more like God's perspective on it. And so the chapter one is kind of like from the human perspective. Chapter two is kind of like from God's perspective. So it's like two introductions to this 16-chapter book that we're going to be studying today. And I've called it could not or would not because at the conclusion of, of, of our first reading, we'll see that they say we could not drive them out. But when we get to chapter two, God says, no, it wasn't that you could not, it's that you would not. Wasn't that you could not, it's that you would not because I promised I would help you and you forgot that. And so God reminds him, he speaks three times in these two chapters and so we're going to have three uh, instructions for us to remember, three times God speaks, so we've got three instructions from God. That's, when I study something like this, I'm always looking, where did God speak? Like where is he speaking to help me unpack this so I can understand it? So we're going to kind of form it around the three times he speaks. But he says, it wasn't that you could not, it's that you would not. And I want to ask you this question. This is a question worth asking ourselves today. Where are you saying to God, I can't? Where are you saying that to God? Where are you saying to God, I can't forgive her? You don't know what she did to me. I can't. Well, I can't forgive him. You don't know what he did to me. I can't. And God says, you can with me. It's that you won't. Where where are you saying, I can't kick this habit? I can't kick this addiction. I can't kick, where you say, and I can't, and God says, wait a minute, in the power of Jesus, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's not that you can't, it's that you forgot God's power, it's that you won't. And so we've entitled it, um, could not or would not, but I want you to be asking yourself as we go through this text, where have you said, I can't? Because in the book of Judges, here in these first two chapters, Israel failed to fully trust and obey God. And as a result, God turned them over to oppression from their enemies. But when they cry out, he sends judges to save them. And I think as we study this, we can learn from Israel, and we can learn from the way God responded. We can learn to truly and fully trust and obey the Lord. And as we look here today, God speaks three times. He gives us three instructions to remember. Now, y'all pray for me, and y'all be good kids now, because I've got a lot of reading to do. We've got two chapters to read, but I'm going to break it into three bites, okay? And so stay dialed in. We've got a lot of big names to speak and, and a lot of things to cover. But we're going to be listening for when God speaks. And he speaks early in this first reading. Let's begin. Chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went up with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek. Now Adonai in Hebrew means the Lord. And so this sounds like more like a title, the Lord of Bezek or the King of Bezek. Adonai Bezek it says. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Well, of course, that's what you do in these times, right? It's just a random thing, but it's just the beginning. Trust me, we're in the book of Judges. It's just the beginning. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahimon and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-sephir. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksah my daughter for a wife, and Othniel the son of Kenaz. Now time out for a second, this is this is our little foreshadowing of the first judge that we'll read about in chapter three, Othniel. He's a he's a hero, he's, he's the nephew of Caleb and he Thinks Aksa apparently is beautiful enough to go fight for. So here he comes. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, which is kind of a desert land, she said, Uh, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, now this is a tribe that's not of Israel. This this is the the family of Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, but they've been traveling with the Israelites all these years, and they've decided we're going to move in and help Judah. Just, just something you can read about over there in the book of Exodus, uh, Jethro and his and his father and his family. They went up to with the people of Judah from the city of Palms in the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath uh, and devoted it to Jerusalem. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza uh, with Within ter- uh, with its territory in Ashkelon, with its territory and Ekron, with its territory, and the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not, uh-oh, there it is. There's our title. He was doing so good. But he could not drive out the inhabitants, inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove it out, He drove out from it the three sons of Anak. I'm going to pause there. And here's our first instruction for us to remember in order for us to learn to trust and obey the Lord. Remember the battle is the Lord's. Learning to fully entrust, obey God means that we remember that the battle is the Lord's. Go back to when God spoke. Remember I said that we're looking for where God speaks. You go back to verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. God promised his power. He said, I've given it to you. And so it starts out great. But then Judah apparently forgets that the battle is the Lord's. It starts out so successful Everything they touch, they, they they defeat everybody. Even even Adonai Bezek, who had defeated seventy kings, they defeated him. Now that's a troubling part of the story. The whole thumbs and big toes thing—that's troubling. I, that's weird, right? That's some strange stuff. This is only the beginning of strange stuff that we will encounter in the Book of Judges. But. Notice a couple of things. We might be troubled from our modern twenty first century point of view to look back across three thousand years and say, "Isn't this like some kind of holy jihad that God has sent them on? Like they're supposed to cleanse the land? This is this is like dispossessing people who owned the land previously. I mean, isn't this you know?" And we question it, but but for us to understand it, first of all, uh, th- this this fellow Adonai Bezek he, he says in verse seven. God has repaid me. I've done the same thing. So he recognized he had it coming. But the other thing to recognize is if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, when God first gave his covenant to Abraham. And the word covenant in the Hebrew uh, is it means the word to cut. And we even still use that kind of terminology today, to cut a deal. Uh, we, to cut a, and, and so covenant uh, in Hebrew means to cut. And so he told Abraham, I want you to cut uh, a a calf and a a goat and a lamb and a pigeon, and I want you to lay them apart from each other so half is here and half is here. And the way this was not uncommon for Abraham during his day, that if they were going to cut a deal, if they were going to make a covenant, that the two parties would walk through the path of blood between the animals. And so uh, they were basically saying, if I break the covenant, then what happened to these animals should happen to me but they walked through it together. But after Abraham had laid it out, this is back in Genesis chapter 15, if you want to read about it, and God gave him this covenant, God recognized that Abraham could not keep his part, so he put him into sleep. He put him in a deep sleep, and God went through by himself. Amen. Because God's the only one that can keep this this covenant. We can't. We couldn't. We can't. And since we can't, we won't. We have neither the... The, the power nor the willpower. And we forget that the battle is Lord. So he put Abraham to sleep and, in, and, and when he's asleep he gives him a vision. He goes, now your people will take this land but not yet. First they will go into captivity for 400 years. Now he told Abraham this long before he had Isaac, long before Isaac had Jacob, long before Jacob had the 12 sons that became the 12 tribes that got carried into Egypt and where they were there in slavery for 400 years. But he told Abraham about it and he goes, after And he says this, after the sins of the Canaanites and the Amorites comes to the full measure, which is going to be nearly 500 years later, then I'm going to send your people back, your children back to possess the land. So he gave the land of Canaan because he's the capital J in Judges. Until the stench of their sin rose to his nostrils where he couldn't, he'd given them 500 years to repent and they didn't. So I would say, let's be careful about judging God. He's the capital J judge, and he's using Israel to cleanse the land and for it to be a land that belongs to his people, a people that only worship the one true God. But what we find out is they couldn't, and they couldn't, and they don't do it, and, and they're unable it's after the death of Joshua. That's where the book of Judges takes place. It begins with after the death of Joshua. Joshua's name was Yeshua, which means God's salvation, which is the same name that we say Jesus, right? But this is, the, this is the season now, and certainly Judah had to go first. God told Judah to go first because Judah always went first. If you go back and read Exodus, when they encamped, Judah always camped to the eastern side where the sun came up. They, they picked up first, and they always led. Now he, Judah's actually the fourth son of Jacob, the fourth tribe of Israel, but he's elevated back there in Genesis when when Jacob uh, puts the blessing on the 12 sons, he puts a special blessing on on Judah. Judah which means God be praised, Yahweh be praised. He puts a blessing on him. He goes he goes, "You're a lion." You're like a lion, and the scepter will never pass from your hands. Kings are going to come from you. And this is all pointing to Jesus, who is the son of David, who's in the lineage of Judah. Judah. And it's where we get the name Jew. It comes from the tribe of Judah. And so they go first, and they they win great battles. And for a season, one of their chief uh, uh, leaders... Joshua's dead, but Caleb is still alive. And if you'll remember, Joshua and Caleb were the two spies from the 12 spies who 45 years earlier, they'd gone into the land and spied out the land for Moses and the people of Israel. And 10 came back with a negative report and said, we, they were giants and we were like grasshoppers in their sight. But Joshua and Caleb said, no, listen, we can do it. It's the land filled with milk and honey and God can help us that's this Caleb and so when it came time to come into Israel finally 40 years later the only two men that actually got to go in that were still alive that left Egypt were Joshua and Caleb but now Joshua's dead Caleb's still alive and Caleb says to Moses Moses says listen you were faithful what land do you want you get to pick and he says hmm you know what My right arm is as strong as it was. When we came into the land, I was 40. I'm 85 years old now. But my right arm is just as strong as it was then. Give me the mountains. Give me the giants. And so if you looked at verse 20, you saw that Caleb took Hebron, and he took the land of Anak. And Anak was the father who who all of his boys were big, giant men. And so that's where Caleb goes. Caleb's from the tribe of Judah. But here's what starts happening. And maybe this happens to you. Success after success after success. You start off small. You, maybe when you first got married, you were like me and my wife. We lived in a little 12 by 55 trailer in, in, a, in a little uh, trailer park in Radford, Virginia. It was called Rustic Village. We used to call it Rusty Village. And, and you start out like that, and you, you don't have much. And and you you just praying and asking God for everything because you you don't have any you don't have a bank account you I, we couldn't qualify for a credit card yet I mean do you remember being there and you start and you trust God more because that's all you have right. and I think Judah starts out that way they start out like he said he would give us the land and boy they're just like taking people down they're they're cleansing the land they're doing it right and then they encounter those iron chariots down in the plains. You see, those, those Philistines, those Canaanites, they were a people who probably traveled there from the island of Crete, and they had ironworks, and they were more advanced technologically than the people of Israel were, and they encountered this, and they went, we, we couldn't do it. We couldn't kick them out. But these are the children that forgot that when Joshua led the people in, they encountered a city called Jericho that had walls so high, no one had ever overthrown Jericho. And God said, I'll give it to you. All I need you to do is march around it for seven days. And on the seventh day, march around it seven times. And after you've marched around it seven times, I want you to blow trumpets and shout and the walls will come down. And so the people did and the walls did. They... I think they could have just let out a shout and, and blown the wheels off those iron chariots, but they forgot, and plus, they had gotten used to being successful, and they forgot the battle is the Lord's. So they said they could not. They said they could not. Don't be afraid. I don't know what you're facing today. Maybe the doctor gave you bad news. The battle is the Lord's. It's not the doctors. We need doctors. God gives us medical science. There's a reason for it. It's a blessing. But God has the final say. The battle is the Lord's. I can't kick this habit. I can't kick this addiction. Of course you couldn't. It, you, of course you couldn't. But God can. The battle is the Lord's. I can't, I can't get my marriage back together. Of course you can't. But the battle is the Lord's. He can. I, whatever. I can't forgive. Yes, okay, so you can't. But God can. The battle is the Lord's. In 2 Chronicles, we read this. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Where are you in your life? You've experienced some success, so now you think you got this, but you don't got this. You're going to encounter some iron chariots, and when you do, all of a sudden, you recognize your power is falling short. And you'll say, I can't. And it's true, you can't, but God can. Amen. Remember, the battle is the Lord's. Well, let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. Chapter 1, verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now, I want you to take note, they don't say in verse 21 that they could not. They say they did not. Just take note of that. That's going to happen eight more times. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. Now notice it doesn't say tribe of Joseph. Joseph, it says house of Joseph. It's because Joseph's not a tribe. What happened is Joseph is the one who who was under the Pharaoh in Egypt. You've got to go back to Genesis to study this. Look at like chapter 48, 49, 50 right in there. And Jacob decided to give Joseph's first two sons equal rights to his sons, and he made Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, he made them tribes, okay? So when we say house of Joseph, we're talking about two tribes. We're talking about Manasseh and Ephraim. I probably will have to put some notes out this week to help you all study to see how this works. But that's that's why it says house of. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, which means house of God, and the Lord was with them, and the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go, And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Now, it almost sounds like the house of Joseph was following the plans of how Joshua took on Jericho, and they met that prostitute. Uh, the spies met that prostitute named Rahab, and they said, if you'll rescue us, we'll rescue you. And she says, well, I trust that the Lord, your God, is going to give you this city. And I, I and so she made an expression of faith, and so the spies said, if you'll get us out of the city alive, whoever's in this house, if you'll put a scarlet, uh, rope outside this house, then we'll make sure that you survive. And so Rahab is over there in the lineage of Jesus Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. and so maybe uh, maybe jo- Joseph was like, hey, I remember that worked when we took the city of Jericho but the only problem here is this guy that comes out made no expression of faith, this is what happens. We start compromising. We, we follow part of God's word, but not all of God's word. And, and so he goes and builds another uh, pagan city just like the first one they let him out without any expression. And Just a, just an observation, let me keep reading. I need to stop preaching and keep reading, okay. Chapter uh, 1, verse 27, Manasseh, remember Manasseh is one of the sons of Joseph, now he's an equal part tribe, did not drive out, here it is again, did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethsheon and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo. By the way, that's where we get Armageddon from the plain of Megiddo in the book of Revelation, we see that a great battle will take place in that plain somewhere in the future, and its villages for the Canaanites persisted in in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. So now we start seeing, you know what? These Canaanites are good workers, and they know how to do metalwork and stuff. Rather than driving them out, why don't we put them to work? They uh, They saw profit in not driving them out. And Ephraim, verse 29, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer Uh, among them. Zebulun did not drive out uh, the inhabitants of Cutron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the uh, inhabitants of Sidon, or Ahalab, or Akzib, or of Helba, or Afik, or Rahab. Re- so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Did not drive. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. Now we get to, to Dan, verse 34. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan. So instead of Dan driving out, they're getting driven out. See how it just keeps going down, down, down? The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to, uh, to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Sha'albim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent to the of akrabim from selah and upward. Now we're in chapter two and God's going to speak again. Remember I said he's going to speak three times and this is the part we've been waiting on because I'm tired of they did not, aren't you? Now the angel of the Lord. Now many times when you see that angel of the Lord that now speaks as if he is the Lord, many will say this is a Christophany or, or uh, a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ. Now, the angel of the Lord went from Gagal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Bochim means to weep, uh, to, to weep. Now we're at the second Uh, instruction for us to remember in order to trust and obey the Lord, remembering that God's commands are for our good. So we trust God's power and we trust God's plan, remembering that his commands for us are good. Sometimes we think when God tells us to do something, we think he's trying to limit our freedom. I'd rather do this. But the truth is if we obey his word, it results in him being able to bless us and we find blessing in our life. When we disobey his word, it brings sorrow and and suffering. But here we see God speak in chapter two and he he goes, you said you could not, then you said you did not, but the truth is you disobeyed me, you would not. You had no will to do it. And we see them slowly compromising. They're little by little compromising. You know what? I could drive them out. Like the tribe of, jo- of Joseph, uh, of the house of Joseph was so powerful. It had two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. They could have defeated everybody, but they went, you know what? These guys are hard workers. We, we, we've got the land now. Let's just leave them here with all of their false religions and their, and their pluralism. And, their, and, and they, they allowed the temptation to stay in their camp for economic reasons. You know, we'll often do that today. For economic reasons, we'll say, you know, it'd just be cheaper to live together rather than to get married. You know, we can get more money from welfare or from the government. We can do this or that. We start compromising. You know, it would be easier uh, not to make a commitment because then if we break it, it's just so expensive. It it would be more economical to to lie on my taxes or... we think of all these ways, you know, God, you know, God's forgiving. And, and so we begin to compromise and use worldly methods. Well, that's what they began to do. And it goes from Judah, who thought he couldn't, to this group who didn't. They they didn't because they didn't want to. And you'll notice, did not drive out eight times going through all of these tribes till we finally get to the point with Dan where he gets driven out. I want to show you a map uh, quickly you'll notice that nine of the twelve tribes are mentioned and I don't know if you can see from there and some of you that are in the center are looking at my podium and I apologize for that but Judah's in the south they have Gaza down here they have all the land like uh, along the the western border of the Dead Sea, all the way up to Jerusalem. Judah by far is the biggest landmass, and they were the most successful uh, at, at winning the, their land. And then Simeon, you'll notice back in chapter one, he invited the tribe of Simeon, Judah invited the tribe of Simeon to help. And Simeon really is surrounded by Judah and kind of disappears inside of Judah. And so uh, Judah's this southern uh, land, if you will. And then we have Benjamin, Dan, Ephraim, Manasseh was so huge, it's on both sides of the Jordan, east and west Manasseh, Zebulun, Issachar, up there's Megiddo. Dan, man, they couldn't hang on. They eventually end up moving up here uh, some years later. Uh, You'll see that Reuben was not mentioned, Gad was not mentioned, because they had land on the other side when they were fighting with Moses, and that's why they're not mentioned here. Uh, Also not mentioned was Issachar, but Megiddo was mentioned, which means Issachar was probably fighting there. The one that's not mentioned at all is Levi, the tribe of Levi, and that's because Levi was the priestly tribe that God says, they're my possession, so I'm not going to give them a land allotment. I'm going to give them cities and all of the land allotments because they're to be the priestly tribe for the people. And so um, I know that was a lot, but just giving you an explanation about, well, wait a minute, all the tribes weren't mentioned. Well, that's why. So um, Gilgal to Bochim. Is is Gilgal like a place where the angel of the Lord hangs out? It's it's, a strange. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Dr. Wearsby says in his commentary, uh, they went from winning to weeping. Gilgal means to roll away, to roll away. Uh, Gilgal was the place that Joshua and the people came in, and they they, they went before the Lord, and they had revival, and they repented, and it became the home base of of Joshua, and they just won battle after battle. Gilgal was a place of rejoicing and of getting right with God. But bochim, which means weeping, was a place of repentance and weeping because they didn't do what God said. I don't think it was a place where angels hang out. I think it's there for a reason that the Lord's reminding them of what it looks like when they're right with him. You have not obeyed my voice, even though I was doing it for your own good. Notice that he says something here when he's speaking. He says in verse um, 1, I will never break my covenant with you. This is God saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, this this puts the Lord on an apparent um, dilemma. It puts him on the horns of a dilemma because the Lord says, I'll never leave you, but there's a problem. You you keep leaving me. What's God going to do about that? So all through the book of Judges, we get this giant question mark. How's God going to solve this? He promises to never leave us, but at the same time, we keep leaving him. How's he going to give us a judge, a savior, a true savior, that can solve our could not, would not problem? We need a new heart. We need a new would. We need a new heart, because the heart is what? The seat of the will. We need a new heart that would, and therefore with the power of Jesus, could. And so we feel this tension. But the law is good, But the problem is, we can't keep it. Look what it says in Deuteronomy. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases Him and love Him and serve Him with all your heart and soul. And you must always obey the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Not to limit your freedom, but to be a blessing to you. The problem, however, is, and what the Israelites are learning, they could not... Because they would not. Because they need a new heart. And they need a better judge. They need a better savior. And so we feel that tension throughout. Now let's keep reading. We're at chapter two, verse six. Now, and remember this is from God's perspective. Chapter two, I told you, chapter one is kind of like the people's report from the field. Now God's talking about it. And he kind of backtracks in verse six back to when Joshua was still alive and he kind of gives us some of that information, okay? When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Hares in the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash, and all that generation also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So here's So Joshua's gone now. So God's reminding us of that. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now Baal was a God, of a Canaanite God, uh, many times a God of war. Uh, And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and, and the Astaroth. Astaroth is a female deity, uh, the little, little gods, that, uh, goddess of fertility that people would offer their firstborn to in order to have uh, fertile uh, lives and fertile fields. So the anger of the Lord, verse 14, was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, because he saw their distress who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored, they prostituted themselves after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, and here is he speaking the third time, right? Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And so we conclude chapter 2 and the introduction to this book. Here we are at the third instruction to remember. Remembering that God has raised up Jesus to save us. Remembering that God has raised up Jesus to save us. We can trust God's provision. We can trust his power. We can trust his plans, his commandments. We can trust his provision. And you might be saying, I I didn't see Jesus in what you just read. Gary, you didn't mention Jesus, and you'd be right. But we do see that God raised up judges to save them. And as long as those judges lived, they would be rescued for a season. But the problem with these 12 judges, as we'll find, is they keep dying. These are faulty, frail, human judges. And as heroes go, they go from "Eh, okay to crazy. I mean, these are some... And every time we try to put our trust in a human king or a human hero... They always let us down. There's only one who's never never let us down, and that's Jesus. And we can see, remember that horns of the dilemma that, that the father had caused really for himself as he he walked through in, in that covenant with Abraham by himself saying, I'm the only one that can keep both sides because I know you can't keep your side. And here he's saying to the people of Israel, you haven't kept your side of the covenant. You haven't driven out the false gods and the false religions. In fact, you've, en- you've embraced pluralism, and you you've made me an add-on. You, yeah, you say you believe in me, but you also worship the Baals. You also worship Ashtoreth. This is what we live like today. People don't mind if we, if we worship Jesus. They just mind when we say he's the only way. They, they're okay with us having Jesus as an add-on so it doesn't really change the way we live. They're, the problem is when we make him not an add-on, but the only way. And so the Israelites here had made God, Yahweh God, an add-on, and they were worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. Uh, They were worshiping whoever in order to get their own way, indeed putting themselves in the place of God. They'd forgotten. Uh, They'd no longer remembered the gods of their fathers. And so we see here really from the absence of a true judge, a capital J judge, uh, an urge... uh, a desire, uh, someone save me. And so God looks at, it. God, here's God, did you see all these emotions that God's having? Twice it says he's angry. Why is he angry? Now look, if he didn't care about his people, if he didn't care about Israel, he wouldn't be angry. You know this, who can make you angry? Your spouse, your kids, somebody close to you? Yeah, that's the person that knows your buttons. But God has given himself to Israel, and now when they've rejected him, in fact, they've whored after others. They've broken their monogamous relationship with him, that he's the husband and they're the bride. They've broken it to chase after. He's angry about it. Why? Because he loves them. He wants wants to be their only God. And, And they are his people, like that. Of course he's angry. It makes sense that he's angry. But he doesn't destroy them. Instead, he allows them to get what they've, what they deserve. He allows them to have what they've, you, okay, you want to keep them here? Let me show you what it does to you. Let, let it test you. Even even the judgment is, is grace because it, he hopes it will drive them back to him. But this whole time, I'm just thinking, you know what they need? They need a judge that won't die. Because every time they'd have a judge, they'd follow for a while, but as soon as that judge would die, it says they would become more corrupt than they were before. As soon as he would pass away. It says in the book of Acts, no one else can save us. Indeed, we can be saved only by the power of the one named Jesus and not by any other person. There is no name given under heaven except, no no name of salvation given except for Jesus. That's the exclusive claim of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is a problem for a modern pluralistic age that says, can I have, I'd like kind of a buffet religion. I like some of this and some of that. And that's what was happening to Israel. They'd compromised with God's word. Now they were completely canonized. They, but God still loves them and he pities them and he keeps on sending them a rescue. Israel had neither the power, they could not, nor the willpower, they would not. And that's where we are unless we have a Savior, someone to rescue us, to help us fully obey the Lord. Where are you saying I can't? Where are you saying I don't have the willpower? Wherever you're saying that, God is saying you could not and you would not, but I can and I did when I sent you Jesus. Because Jesus is the unseen member in this two chapters. He's, he's the angel of the Lord that brought the word to him. He's the one who hung on the cross, and we see at the cross an intersection between the two horns of, of the dilemma that God loves us and God's holy. And so on the cross, we see a sinless sacrifice of Jesus. We see God's love and God's holiness intermingled so that Jesus is the true Savior That rescues us from our inability, our could not, and our would not. Where are you at today where you're still saying to God, I can't. And the truth is, you just don't have the willpower. When Jesus stood over the city of Jerusalem, he said, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, how I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not how about you? Would you come to the true Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for your sins, is raised from the grave, and lives today? Would you come to him, and then he'll give you the power so that you can, and he'll give you the new heart so that you want what his will is, you, you will. We used to sing a song when I was growing up. It was written in 1850. I looked it up to see. This song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. I need help with that. I need a new heart. I want to trust and obey, but I end up compromising or depending on my own success, or or then I, I start using worldly methods. I need a new heart, but only Jesus can give it to us. He's the true Savior. Will you turn your life over to Him? Would you give your life to Him? Let's pray. Lord, even as we read these chapters in Judges, we first of all see ourselves in its pages, and then we see missing that which we need most that you've given us in your New Testament, and that's Jesus. This tribe of Judah was preparing for Him all along. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the capital j judge the capital s savior lord thank you for giving us jesus i wonder is there anyone in my hearing this morning maybe in this room the next room or watching online that you've never said yes to jesus you've never asked him to come and and help you with your could nots and your would nots would you invite him into your life now just pray like this you can pray with me dear lord jesus i'm a sinner i need a savior I believe believe you died on the cross for my sins, but you were raised from the grave and that you live today. Come and live in me. Make me a child of God. I want to follow you the rest of my days. If you're praying that prayer of faith, believing, he'll save you. Others are here, and you know Jesus, but you've been saying, I can't. You've forgotten that he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He can turn your can't to a can he says, "I can, and I did." Would you just name that that place you don't have forgiveness? You can with His power. That place that you can't kick a habit or an addiction. I can. He's given me a new willpower. I claim it in Jesus' name. The battle is the Lord's. That place that is just too big. You say, "I can't." He can. The battle is the Lord's. He's able. Give it to him. We trust you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.